Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Good morning, William. Hey, Juan, glad to have you back with us. Rob, good afternoon. Hey, another Ron, good to have you with us as well. Dale, aloha. Now, you can't combine languages like that, can you? Seems a little... Seems a little odd. <laughs> Great to have you all with us. We are in the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, and oh, so rich, so rich. The more we dive into this, and I know many of you have studied this in-depthly uh, many times probably in your life, it's one of those books that I come back to again and again and again, and to understand the whole flow of God's story, his purpose of redemption, all that Christ came to do, it unpacks, uh, shines the light on the purpose of the old covenant and everything in the old covenant, and then how Jesus is the fulfillment of and the, su the superior uh, expression of everything in the old covenant. It's a, it's a great, great letter. So what I want to do this morning... Uh, or this afternoon, or this evening, whatever you might be listening to this, is uh, I want to jump ahead for a moment and take a look at where this is going. One of the things that we must get better at as Bible students is reading large chunks. And I, I know I've shared this with you before, but I want to come back to it again and again because we need to be reminded it's so easy to zoom in on one verse, sometimes one word uh, or a paragraph, and forget that these words and sentences and paragraphs are part of extended arguments. This, this whole letter of Hebrews is, is kind of one extended argument. We're not supposed to just abstract and extrapolate small portions without considering where this particular passage uh, fits in the larger context. And so often themes come back and, and the, the author will say something and then come back and pick that theme up and expand on it later, which is what we see here. So yesterday, for instance, we finished with verse 22 of chapter 7 that says that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And then shortly, he will go on to describe in what ways this covenant that Jesus has become the guarantee of is better than the old covenant. That is an all-encompassing statement. Everything about Israel's relationship to God was attached to the covenant. And so you can see what the author is doing here. You see how he's building his argument. If these Jewish converts are, well, let me, let me say it this way. I've argued, uh, I believe it's implicit in the text. I know Lon uh, had a question about this the other day. Um, I believe the, the clues are all throughout the letter that these are former Jews who've now come to Christ and are under persecution. We've seen some of that already in chapter 6, and we'll see more of it coming up fairly soon, uh, what these people were willing to give up for the faith. And now they're wavering. 
And I believe it's because they're being persecuted for walking away from the old covenant and believing in Jesus and the new covenant. So in addition to the persecution and so on, you know, well, it seems reasonable to me at least, maybe you maybe you don't agree with me, but it seems reasonable to me that in addition to the persecutions, there was also a pull to bring them back by arguing about what they were giving up. So what is the Jew giving up if he leaves the old covenant for Christ? Well, if I were a Jew trying to persuade you back to the old covenant, I would say things like, the covenant is the way God relates to mankind. We have the law as Jews. We have the Aaronic priesthood. We have the sacrifices. We have the temple where God is. We have Moses, Aaron, Levi, the law, Ten Commandments, all of that. And I would say to you, how are you going to be close to God if you don't have a temple? And how are you, how are your sins going to be atoned for if you don't have animal sacrifices? And how are you going to get close to God if you don't have a priesthood? And all of this was contained and defined in the covenant. We have his law. We have Moses, the great mediator. We have Aaron, the high priest. We have the sacrifices, the temple, all of this. And if you walk away to follow this Jesus guy, you give up all of that. And the writer of Hebrews is taking each point of the old covenant and saying, oh, I have all of that, except I have the real thing. See, what you Jews are worshiping and, and, and following is just a shadow, an outline, a preview of what was coming. But now that I found Christ, I have the fulfillment. I have the actual living, eternal temple, sacrifice, priest, lawgiver, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the line. That's what he's doing. So he talks about the better covenant, and then he's going to describe more about the priests, then more about the covenant, and come back to the priests. So what I want you to see is in chapter 10, where he's kind of going with this. Chapter 10, for the law. Okay, that would be the, the law of Moses. That would include the Ten Commandments, the laws of the priests, and the sacrifices, and the temple, all of it. The law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. Now just hang on, look at that description for a minute. The law was a shadow, but not the substance. So if I am out in the sunlight and I see something, I see a house, a beautiful house, and I turn and look and see the shadow, the sun is, is behind it and casting a shadow. When I'm looking at the shadow, I'm not looking at the house. And maybe the shadow tells me something, but the house is the thing itself. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is everything in the old covenant was a shadow. It gave some 
outline, some description, some information about the reality. But now that Christ has come, we see the real thing. That's what he's saying. The law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Same thing he said earlier, right? The sacrifices of the old covenant could not get the Jews to the intended destination. You could draw near to God, but you couldn't get to God because those sacrifices couldn't do it. They were just a picture. They were just a shadow. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? You see his argument? If those sacrifices could actually get you to the destination, then they would stop offering them. Once they got near to God, then the sacrifice did their job. They don't need to offer the sacrifices anymore. But those sacrifices did not get the Jew near to God, so they had to continue to be offered. Would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin? If those sacrifices did the work, then they would have stopped offering them because their conscience would have been clear. Arch Deluxe, I'm glad you're with us. This is hopefully going to help explain what appears to be a disconnect between what I'm saying and what you're saying. Those sacrifices, now the author is telling us what the sacrifices did in the Old Covenant. They didn't atone for sins. They are a reminder of sins year by year. Why? For it is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. Offering animals do not, in fact, not do not, cannot take away the sins of humanity. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing repeatedly here is showing Moses and Aaron and the temple and the priesthood and all that was good in its day. It was the revelation given to the Israelites. But it was telling the story of Jesus. And it was a shadow to give some outline, a penumbra of the reality, a, a, a picture but Jesus is the reality. I mean, that's how he starts the letter off. In various ways of old, through the prophets and so on, God spoke here and there, but now he's spoken in a son, S-O-N. And the son is superior to everything in the old covenant. And so now he's arguing, now that the fulfillment has come, we are to leave behind the old and press on to the new, which is consistent with everything else the New Testament says, including Jesus himself said it over and over and over again. All right, so back to chapter seven. I just want you to see where we're going because this is so important to see the flow of 
arguments and, and context of these repeated themes and something stated and it's redeveloped uh, later on, that kind of thing. All right, so back to chapter 7, verse 22. So Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And then he's going to speak of that covenant more fully, but he spends a little bit more time on the priests. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. Right? That's one of the weaknesses of the old covenant priesthood. These priests could not continue to do their work because they kept dying. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is superior to the old covenant priests because they kept dying. He lives forever. Going back to the promise made in, in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to Melchizedek. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. All right, we, we finished with that yesterday. That's really great news. We don't have a priest that's possibly going to die next week. And now who's going to offer sacrifices on our behalf? Now, now who's going to take us into the throne room of God? That's not the kind of priest we have. We have a priest who lives forever. Therefore, he is forever able to save us because his priesthood and his sacrifice is eternal and effective. He goes on, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Now, imagine you are one of these Jews trying to persuade these people back to Judaism. And this guy is telling those you're trying to persuade about this high priest. And now you're comparing what is said about Jesus here to the sons of Aaron, who are your priests. Do they fit this description? Holy? Innocent? Undefiled? Separated from sinners? Are they exalted above the heavens? Of course not. Look what he says about those priests of Israel. So Jesus does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That's what the Jewish priest had to do. Before he could take on the priestly role and offer the sacrifices for the people, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Jesus, our high priest, he does not need to offer up sacrifices for his own sins. He doesn't have any sins. He's holy, perfect, separated. He's apart from sinners. And... 
he doesn't dwell over there in that building or work in that building in Jerusalem. He's exalted above the heavens. He outranks everyone and everything. Which is the whole point of chapter one, remember? Even the angels call him God and worship him. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Now he will come back to this a little while later and show that Jesus as the offering, as the sacrifice, is perfect, spotless, without blemish, and is far superior to the bulls and goats that could never take away the sins of the people. But here he's just contrasting the character of the Jewish priests with our high priest, Jesus. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. They're weak. From Aaron on. I mean, you remember you remember how Aaron was um, uh, introduced is not quite the right word, but you remember the first big story about Aaron, right? Moses is up on the hill receiving the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone and Aaron is down with the people of God making an idol for them to worship. And then when he's caught, he says, oh, I don't know what happened. I just threw in the gold and out popped this calf. I mean, that's the, the, the great forefather of the high priests of Israel. He's weak. He's unholy. And he died. The high priest of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not weak. And he's not merely a servant. The word of the oath, this is Psalm 110 again. The, you are a priest forever, according to Melchizedek. The word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints not weak men, but a son made perfect forever. So God gives the Aaronic priesthood in the law, which appoints weak men. But then later on, during David's day, he makes an oath that there's going to be another priest and another priesthood that will last forever. And it's not just Aaron, a servant of the, of the kingdom. It is a son of who, and here again is another word from the telos group to reach the goal. He is the one who has made or achieved the goal forever. His priesthood, his sacrifice, everything is enduring. Now, in case you haven't been following along closely, he gives us a summary statement here. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. This is where all this was heading. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Think about that. Our high priest, again, it sort of envision this, uh, this debate between 
the writer of Hebrews and some of these Jewish apologists. You want us to go back to the temple service and the animal sacrifices and the priesthood of Aaron. But your sacrifices can't take away sins. Your priesthood does not get us into the presence of God. He's still behind the curtain in your view of things. Our pri- and your priests all die. Our priest lives forever. Our priest has an effective sacrifice that actually does the work. And our high priest has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high in the heavens. So why would we give this up and go back? He is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Ooh, that's a blow. You all are worshiping in a tabernacle that man made. But our high priest is in the true tabernacle. See the language? We looked at chapter 10, the language of the shadow and substance idea. The earthly tabernacle that man made is a shadow of the real tabernacle that the Lord made. It gave some vague picture of the reality, but now Jesus has entered into the reality, the substance. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, it sounds like he's going to get into offering himself as the sacrifice, but he goes into a little bit of a tangent, and then he comes back to that later on. He says, now, if he were on earth, if our high priest was serving in an earthly tabernacle, he would not be a priest at all. He's already started this point, right? Because he's not of the right tribe. He can't be a priest in the earthly tabernacle because he's not a Levite. So the fullness, the the real tabernacle has a priestly order that's not from Levi, but from Judah. (laughs) Really, it's from Melchizedek, right? But not from Levi. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer gifts according to the law. That's the old covenant priesthood. The law puts them in the position of offering sacrifices. That's not the new covenant priesthood. The new covenant priesthood is entirely different from the Levitical priesthood. The sanctuary is different. The sacrifice is different. The high priest is different. The location is different. The entire covenant is different. The priests in Jerusalem were serving a copy of, and a shadow of the heavenly things. There's that term again. They're serving in this in the shadow. When now 
the fullness has been revealed. They should stop serving the shadow and serve the fullness and go to, the, to Christ, the real high priest of the real tabernacle of the new covenant. But they're serving, serving the copy, the shadow of the heavenly things. Just as jo Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Moses was given very minute details of how to build the tabernacle because it was going to teach something, foreshadow something about the eternal tabernacle in the heavens where Jesus is the high priest with the eternal sacrifice that is effective and powerful and actually does take away sins and is superior to Aaron in every way. So these people are being tempted to go back to the shadows and the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Do not go back to the shadows. We have the substance. We have the reality. Hold fast to Christ, his priesthood, his temple, his sacrifices. It is vastly superior. William K. says, take a look real quick and then we got to move on. On, the, on YouTube this past week, a quote, Christian guy suggests that Christian men get circumcised and circumcise their boys so they can start keeping Passover feasts, etc. Yeah. That's, uh, that's dangerous ground. Uh, Paul says explicitly, circumcision means nothing any longer. Uh, Arch Luck says the writer of Hebrews was a Jewish apologist. Uh, nope, he was not. Uh, CM says he is seated, meaning his work is done. The Levitical priests have to keep offering and doing. Exactly, because their sacrifices don't do anything except remind them of their sin. Jesus sat down. He did it. He's done. He has no more work to do. Yeah, great point. Oh, it's good stuff, huh? So rich. Oh, so good. All right. Uh, tomorrow's Friday. Come back, gentlemen. Tomorrow's Friday with the fellas. And we will talk more about manhood. Till then, have a great day. And we will see you, Lord willing, tomorrow. God bless.